This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Looking at a map of Glacier National Park, Lake McDonald is shaped like the hands of a clock, letting you know it's a little after 1.30 in the afternoon, and is located in a glacier-dug, U-shaped valley just a two-mile walk north from the park's headquarters on its western border. Its Upper Lake Ranger Station is located at McDonald's northernmost point, on the tip of the hour hand from my clock mind picture a moment ago. On the eastern shore of the lake, and a little further south, is Lake McDonald Lodge, which was built in 1914, and like Granite Park Chalet, resembles a Swiss hunting lodge, but unlike the chalet, it has running water, electricity, and flush turlets for pooping. On the western shore is Kelly's camp. Quote, The 6.5-acre historic district includes 12 rustic log buildings. The big house served as the lodge. Ten smaller summer cabins hosted individual families, and a small cabin was used as a wash house. Joan Barry initially saw the grizzly in the middle of June. She and her three daughters had been one of the first families to take up residence at Kelly's camp that summer. They moved into the big house, which was the largest cabin on site, and she one day glanced out the back window to see a large but scrawny bear digging through the house's garbage cans. It was clearly a grizzly, but Joan had never seen one like it before. Quote, The hair on the mane behind the hump, usually luxuriously thick, was short and thin, and when the animal leaned over to dip into the Barry family's trash barrel, Mrs. Barry could see bald spots along the line of the backbone. The head seemed long and narrow, misshapen. It looked like a normal grizzly bear's head that had been flattened and stretched. Its claws were abnormally long, as if they hadn't been worn down by a bear's usual forages for food. It had become accustomed to eating what humans left behind, and it was old and sick. Uncommon to traditional bear behavior, the ragged bear would feast on the camp's garbage during daylight hours, prompting everyone on site to seek shelter in the nearest available structure. Within two weeks, the bear seemed to become more and more agitated, specifically with the Barry family in the big house. If it sensed any movement inside while it ate, it would charge the cabin, slapping its walls and windows with its taloned paws. Joan and her children became quite good at playing the freeze-so-we-aren't-killed game until it lumbered away but their German short-haired pointer was an outlier and a rebel, and sometimes barked at the bear, instantly triggering an attack of the cabin's exterior. At the end of June, the bear tried to crash someone's birthday party at the camp, and when a resident called the nearest ranger station to report the incident, they were told there was no immediate danger, and that rangers would eventually look into it. Early in July, a ranger conducting a planned visit arrived in Kelly's camp to a distraught, frazzled Joan Barry, and a recollection of her month of visits from the strange, volatile bear. The ranger responded by asking if she was maybe exaggerating, and Joan, now very annoyed, repeated that the bear was dangerous and had to be dealt with. The ranger said that they would do something about it when his sickness, quote, made him go berserk, and not before. 
On August 1st, a different ranger visited to tell the residents of Kelly's camp that the ragged bear had moved on and was now exclusively rummaging through campsites at Trout Lake, miles away on the other side of Howe Ridge. In orientation and shape, Trout Lake looks very much like Lake McDonald, but is only around 20% of its size, and as I mentioned in part one, is shaped like a bacon. Made up of several hundred subalpine and western larch tree trunks mashed together on the southern end of the lake, the naturally occurring logjam has always made for a crossing spot for the bears around Trout Lake, and was often in use as an easy way for the animals to traverse between its shores. And it was a hugely popular feeding ground among the bears living near the lake because it was packed with sweet berry plants like straw, huckle, and rasp, as well as the cutthroat trout that both man and animal were quite fond of plucking from its glacial waters. But despite this being a full-on pantry for the largest carnivore in North America, the National Park Service set up a campsite in a clearing on the eastern side of the logjam, installing an iron grate over a fire pit for some good old-fashioned cast-iron skillet cooking. And a quick tangent here, I was a picky eater as a kid, and I once went camping with my dad, and he caught a trout, and when he was cooking it over the fire, its eyeball rolled out of its face and into the pan, and then I never ate trout in my life. <laughs> I'm sure my dad was like, game over when that eyeball made its move, and he was correct. The ragged bear was first seen at Trout Lake on June 25th by a pair of honeymooners staying at the logjam campsite. They had been informed of the bear activity, but were eased from worry when the ranger told them their drive-in from Ohio had been far more dangerous. The couple, Ellen and Peter, both 22, were sitting down in their tent to enjoy their dinner when a crash came from the area where they had stowed their gear and supplies, over near the fire grate. Peter opened the tent flap to see a grizzly bear moving through their camp, cracking tin food cans open in its mouth. Peter put a finger to his lips, signaling for silence, then grabbed his new spouse's hand, and they moved together, out of the tent and uphill to the trailhead, either unnoticed or ignored by the grizzly. The couple, now around 150 feet up the hill, watched as the bear destroyed everything in their camp. Their packs were torn open, the food gorged on and scattered about, their tent slashed to ribbons, their dinner ravioli now resting in the ragged bear's tummy. While the bear paused to lap up some lake water, the couple tiptoed back and gathered their meager amount of gear that hadn't been bear crunched and hightailed it to safety, two miles north to a shelter cabin on Teeny Weeny Arrow Lake. At the end of July, two high school friends hiked into Trout Lake for a three-day fishing trip, also taking up residence at the logjam campsite. On their second day, while trying to cross the logjam, the boys turned back to see the ragged bear sitting down among their stuff and eating a loaf of their white bread. Stuck on the logjam, they made a move once the bear began busying itself with a trout carcass, easing themselves into the water at the edge of the logjam and wading north past it, the bear, and into dense vegetation as they headed over Howe Ridge to the upper Lake McDonald Ranger Station to report the animal's intrusion. The teens returned the next day, salvaged what the bear hadn't completely ruined, and went home. The night of the attack on Roy Ducat and Julie Helgeson near the Granite Park Chalet, seasonal ranger Leonard Landa was woken at 1 a.m. by chatter on a shortwave radio. As the sleep cleared from his head, he pieced together the events of the grizzly mauling. There had also been a bear harassing campers and hikers around Lake McDonald and Trout Lake. A different grizzly, it seemed, 
than the man-eater at Granite Park. Ranger Landa had twice hiked to Kelly's camp to set traps for the bear, and both times it had come to nothing. He was flummoxed by the bear's evasions. The skin-and-bones grizzly had tuned its ears finely to the sounds of motor vehicles and always fled into the woods at their first appearance. The park service had issued a standing order that the bear be killed, but he knew that was merely a formality. In two meetings with officials, Landa had been told to wait and see before destroying the bear, even after photos of the beast had been printed in the local newspaper. Listening in, as Fire Control Officer Gary Bunny spoke to Ranger Joan Devereaux at Granite Park about sending an armed ranger to protect its guests and employees, Landa grabbed the telephone and called Bunny to volunteer for the job. He was stationed at the Upper Lake McDonald Ranger Station with his wife and two sons, eight miles from Granite Park and four miles by trail to Trout Lake. He was on duty alone, and it was to be that way for a few days at least, because that night, August 12th to the 13th, quote, a dry lightning storm had sent more than 100 hot strikes lashing into the parched forest, and every available ranger was out on the fire line. Officer Bunny said Landa had too much on his plate already, being the only ranger on Lake McDonald. He would have to stay put. Bunny was going to Granite Park himself. Frustrated, the ranger went back to bed and listened through the night as Ranger Devereaux called on the shortwave for a rescue helicopter, then a second one, and lastly, quote, the request that the coroner be alerted in Kalispell. Ranger Landa woke at 8 a.m. on the 13th and was heading into his office when he heard hurried footsteps on the stone walk behind the station. Standing there, panting, were four young adults whom he had sold a fire permit to the day before. Their names? Paul Dunn, Denise Huckle, Ray Nozek, and Ron Nozek, who were brothers. But the ranger remembered there being a fifth member of their group. They were disheveled and pumping with adrenaline, and they all began to speak at the same time. Landa silenced them by asking where the other girl was. Ray said, quote, She's still up there. The bear dragged her away. The she, who'd been dragged away, was named Michelle Coons. Landa asked two of them to go back with him to Trout Lake to show him where they had last seen Michelle. She could be waiting up a tree for a rescue. One of them responded, quote, She's not up a tree. Landa called Park Headquarters to inform them that another camper was missing after this, a second attack by a second bear in the same night. The ranger, his rifle, and two of the campers, Ron and Paul, hiked to the logjam campsite while Ray Nozek escorted a traumatized Denise Huckle to an awaiting car and a ride home. They made it to Trout Lake and the torn apart campsite by 10 a.m. Along the way, they ran into a fisherman named Andy Sampson who they stopped on his route to the lake and informed of the bear attack. Sampson, reluctant to join the search, unsheathed the long-handled axe in probably a pretty cool way, and the rescue party became four. The searchers spread out from the camp, calling Michelle's name. Paul Dunn stopped 50 yards up the shore and pointed at the ground, informing Ranger Landa that he last saw Michelle there before the bear dragged her uphill. They followed trampled earth and broken branches up and onto a tree-shaded trail at the top of the hill. Ranger Landa, in the point position, saw something in his peripherals lying on the trail, a small patch of white. The ranger bent down and picked it up, before realizing the pale shape was a human ear. Feeling ill, Landa shouted out what he'd found, sending a chill through the group. A few feet further up the trail, 
they came upon Michelle's tattered sleeping bag and a scattering of its feather filling, which marked the bear's further path up the hill. Following the feathers, the group soon discovered a blood-saturated jacket and blouse. Nearing a series of downed tree trunks on the path, one of Michelle's friends, either Paul or Ron, shouted, Here she is! And Ranger Lander rushed to their side. Michelle Kuhn's body lay on a concave piece of turned earth, a spot where humans had previously buried garbage and bears had dug it up. Quote, Landa looked down at the remains of Michelle Coons. The girl was on her back and mutilated beyond recognition. Landa could hardly tell that she was a female. Her stomach and abdomen were gone, the hair missing from her head. At 5 p.m. on the day of the Night of the Grizzlies, the group of five, Paul, Michelle, Denise, Ray, and Ron, crested Howe Ridge and made camp at the Trout Lake Logjam. The friends all worked for the park in some capacity and had a sixth, unofficial member tagging along with them. His name was Squirt, and he was a mixed-breed puppy with a German shepherdish look and big floppy feet. He should not have been in the backcountry. Bears and dogs do not mix well. A dog being present in the park was against the rules for good reason, as we heard with Joan Barry and the cabin attacking Ragged Bear. And yes, that bear was sick and old, but the principle is still true. A bear spotting a dog or vice versa can trigger violent aggression from the massive predator. Also, Squirt does come under peril shortly, and though I'm sure he was quite traumatized, he remained uninjured during the attack of Michelle Coons and was later carried to safety. Employees under the age of 21 had to call home for permission to overnight camp, which is really cute to me, and two of the group had to do so. Michelle, a 19-year-old native of San Diego who worked that season at the Lake McDonald Lodge gift shop, and Paul, a 16-year-old busboy at East Glacier Lodge, just like Roy Ducat from Part 1. Denise, who was 20 and worked as a room clerk in one of the park's lodges, had discovered Squirt abandoned within the park grounds and decided to bring him along and care for the orphan pup. Ray, 23, ran a gas station near Lake McDonald, and his brother Ron, 21, was a server at East Glacier Lodge and Denise's date for the trip. Hubba hubba. <laughs> On their trip over the ridge, the group encountered two fishermen who relayed being chased up trees by an aggressive grizzly the day before, having to stay perched for two hours until the bear sauntered away. This information did little to frighten them. Quote, as Paul Dunn told his parents back in Minnesota much later, if there was one thing that was drummed into us, it was that the bears wouldn't bother us if we didn't bother them, and we certainly weren't going to bother them. Paul, who photographed the trip, said, quote, It was just a nice, easy-going afternoon for a while. They made camp at the logjam, and four of the group headed to the lake for some dinner trout, while Michelle stayed back at camp with a little squirt. Paul, Ray, Ron, and Denise returned a couple of hours later, with only a single trout between them. Paul began to cook the fish over the fire, and Michelle was seated away from the cook on a tree stump at the edge of the campsite. When she looked through the smoke and into the woods beyond, she could see a large shape ten feet away. She jumped up, shouting, Here comes a bear! Paul Dunn described it as, quote, Very large, silvery and brown, a gigantic hump, and a huge head. Ron untied Squirt's leash and carried him 50 yards up the lakeshore from the ragged bear and rejoined his friends. They watched powerless as the grizzly licked the dinner from their plates 
and nosed through their belongings. The group discussed their options. A hike back over Howe Ridge to the Lake McDonald Ranger Station, or they moved north to the shelter cabin at Arrow Lake. Both plans seemed ill-advised, as the five only had one flashlight between them, which would make the trek infinitely more perilous. They built a fire where they stood, and decided to wait the bear out. After twenty minutes of rummaging, the bear left the camp. Paul and the Nozek brothers crept back to their gear, bringing back their sleeping bags, a bag of cookies, and a box of Cheez-Its. They kept the fire burning high and erected a barrier of logs, separating them from their first campsite to deter the bear from getting near. They laid down, circling the fire. Denise lashed Squirt's tether around a log and held the good boy between herself and the log, closing her eyes to try to sleep. The remaining four stayed awake for a while, throwing fresh wood on the fire when its light dimmed, but eventually they were all asleep. Denise woke to splashes coming up the shore from the direction of their old camp. She grabbed Squirt and covered him with her sleeping bag when he stood and began growling into the darkness. Frozen in place, she could see and hear the bear's silhouette retreating to their first camp. Denise woke the rest and told them the bear was back. The brothers burst out of their sleeping bags and brought the fire back to roaring life. It was three in the morning, and by four the splashes and scattered woofing from the grizzly had died out, and all but Denise were asleep once more. Quote, It was 4.30, and the fire had fallen to low flames and embers again, when she heard a splash and narrowed her eyes to peer into the night and saw a bear coming at a lope, straight from the shoreline toward the center of the camp. Denise covered herself and squirt with her sleeping bag as the bear moved around her, intently sniffing the air. Paul Dunn woke to see the bear standing right next to him. He slipped down into his bag and tried to remain silent and still. Quote, You could feel the weight of this animal just by the respiration, just by the sound of the breathing. The bear bit into Paul's sleeping bag and sweatshirt, and he reacted by leaping out of the bag, screaming, The goddamn bear tore my shirt, as the animal reared up onto its hind legs, and Paul scrambled 30 feet up a tree to wait the bear out. Ron Nozek pulled Denise Huckle from her sleeping bag, and they ran toward their original camp. All the while, Paul shouted from his tree for them to find one to climb as well. They were followed by Squirt, who had loosed himself from his leash and ran floppy-footed behind them. Ron gave Denise a boost into a tree, hucked Squirt up after her, and then climbed into an adjacent tree. Paul Dunn watched everything from his hide up in the tree. The bear began to move toward Ray Nozek, sniffing the air, before turning toward Michelle Coons, who was also still in her bag. At this, Ray burst out of his bag to his feet and running in the direction of Ron and Denise, screaming for Michelle to follow. The ragged bear clamped down on Michelle through her sleeping bag. Paul shouted for her to run, but she couldn't because the bear had the bag zipper in its mouth. Michelle then screamed, quote, He's got my arm! My arm is gone! Oh my God, I'm dead. Then silence, as Paul watched the bear carry the sleeping bag, holding Michelle up the hill and into wooded darkness, from which he began to hear the sound of bones crunching. Paul made his way down to the ground, ran to Denise and Ray and Ron and Squirt in the tree, and climbed a nearby one of his own. At dawn, they climbed from their trees, gathering shoes and jackets from their gear before leaving camp. They made their escape over Howe Ridge, encountering a married couple parked at the trailhead, who rushed the panic-stricken quartet to the Upper Lake McDonald Ranger Station, 
where Ranger Leonard Landa was stationed. When the survivors of the attack were dropped off, the kindly couple agreed to keep Squirt in their car while they reported their grave situation to the on-duty Ranger. Ranger Bert Gildart, a sixth-year ranger, had been up until 3 a.m. relaying radio messages regarding the park's firefighting efforts and had only been asleep a few hours when he was called at 8.30 a.m. and assigned to meet Landa at the McDonald Ranger Station to assist him with the bear problem. Ranger Bert sped to the station in his patrol car, finding that Landa had already started over Howell Ridge to Trout Lake with both available rifles and two of the young men that survived the attack. Bert, unarmed, headed after them, carrying a long-handled axe, and finishing the two-hour hike in 45 minutes. Wow. Was he running? Yeah, he ran. Holy shit. Yeah, he was like 23 or something. He was in like perfect shape. Yeah. Me at 23, I could drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Reaching a meadow overlooking Trout Lake, Ranger Gildert watched a rescue helicopter try to land in the lake shallows, then attempting and succeeding to land nearby in the same meadow as he. Pilot John Westover had been shaken from sleep after only a few hours of rest from the trauma of the night before and could not believe what he was hearing. There had been another bear attack, and they needed his rescue coptering skills once more. In the chopper with Westover was Chief Park Engineer Max Edgar, armed with a 300 h H&H Magnum rifle. Quote, Gildert appropriated the weapon and told Edgar he would return it when the bear was dead. An hour later, Michelle Coons's body was recovered and airlifted to Kalispell, 30 miles away. Rangers Landa and Gildert were assigned to hike from the Lake McDonald Trail to Trout and Arrow Lakes to stalk and kill the ragged bear. They spent the day tracking fresh bear scat north toward Arrow Lake, which was convenient because they planned to spend the night at its shelter cabin, which they did after a completely bearless day-long search. Ranger Gildert was up at about around 6 a.m. the next morning, and as he exited the cabin and walked toward the stream out front to fetch water, he caught movement 40 feet away at a bend in the trail off to the right of the cabin. It was the ragged bear, and it began to charge them. And I'll be quoting extensively from the Jack Olson book, Night of the Grizzlies, here. Bring the rifles out, he shouted to Landa. Here's the bear. At the sound of the human voice, the animal halted, made a few shuffling movements with its front feet as though it were going to continue, then slipped sideways into the thick brush along the steep banks of Camas Creek. As he heard Lander rushing around in the cabin, Gildert took note that the grizzly had not backed up, not an inch, but only sidestepped into the heavy canopy of bushes. More seconds passed, and then the bear was in violent motion, hauling itself up and over the bank to charge. In the sights of his gun, Gildert could see nothing but a great expanse of furry neck and chest, and he fired at a range of less than 20 feet. Almost in the same split second, Landa's 300 H&H Magnum went off, and the bear did a giant backdive and fell heavily into the bottom of the gulch. Gildert rushed across the clearing toward the stream, and Landa shouted, Take it easy! This is the most dangerous time! But Gildert was already scrambling down the bank of Camas Creek, and Landa levered a bullet into the chamber of his rifle and followed him down. Instantly, the two experienced hunters knew that the great bear was dead. There were two jagged holes seeping blood, one in the chest and one in the head. Either would have been fatal. 
Gilder dropped to his hands and knees and saw that the bear was a brownish-colored old sow with worn-down molars and a thin, almost scrawny body. After they had radioed headquarters that they had killed a bear, the two friends sat in the little shelter cabin and wondered whether they had shot the right grizzly. Gildert said he was sure they had. What makes you so sure, Landa asked. Well, what do you think she was doing around the cabin this morning, Gildert said. She was stalking us, and that's not normal for a grizzly. Unquote. The bear that killed Julie Helgeson was also exterminated. Park headquarters assigned a team of four park employees to bait the bear at the chalet and kill it when it appeared. Rangers Landa and Gildert were joined by Cliff Martinka, a new hire research biologist proficient with a rifle, and seasonal ranger-slash-high school teacher Carol Hagen. If there were anybody more fitting the role of mad bear hunter, they were occupied holding the raging fire line. On their second night lying in wait, the bear appeared at the chalet's garbage pit. It was a mother with two cubs. On the count of three, all four members of the team fired, and the bear went down bawling, dying. Its cubs ran off, but the group believed they were of enough age to take care of themselves in the wilds. Cliff Martinka, of the four-man bear execution team, removed the Granite Park bear's head and paws for evidence and sliced open its abdomen, discovering a ball of human hair, among other undigested matter, in its stomach. The mother bear, the most dangerous kind of grizzly, also had a permanently torn paw pad, which would have made it pissed off pretty much all of the time. The brains of both killer bears were examined, and neither were found to be rabid. When the ragged bear was dissected, 65 brown head hairs of Caucasian origin were found in its digestive tract, making it conclusive that this bear had killed Michelle Coons. The bear was also found to have glass embedded in its teeth, which would have caused it constant pain and easy aggravation. As a result of its pain, it may have been unable to forage its natural diet, and relying on near-human contact to feed on trash, ultimately lost its fear of its most dangerous enemy, people. The trail ledger at Trout Lake was full of entries regarding the maniac, ragged bear. So the heads of Glacier National Park had fair warning. But unfortunately, those ledgers were only examined at the end of a season, making them useful only in hindsight. So the... What was it you said that so it was? So it's a trail ledger. So the, oh, ledger. Uh, yeah, the trailhead, there was a, a, a little like notebook there, and people could, could write about their experiences. Oh, so I went on this trail, and it was great and beautiful, but... But we got chased by bear a bear. Was... Yeah, exactly. But a bear stole our food. But, you know, yeah, it was aggressive. It's it's skinny. It looks sick. It's it's chasing, you know, well, all they, of this stuff. They did keep their promise that they would wait till it went berserk to do anything about it. You can't fault them for that. Litter was the top factor contributing to what has been dubbed the Night of the Grizzlies. I don't know if you've watched Mad Men, but there is an episode where Don Draper and his family have a roadside picnic, and then to clean up, Don grabs their blanket and shakes all of their trash onto the ground, gets in the car, and drives away. That's how it was in Glacier. Campers left crap everywhere. From food to poops to broken glass, the park's visitors seemed to leave mountains of trash in every corner of the park, drawing bears and creating a cycle that would eventually spiral into violence and death. J.K. Simmons, who narrates the documentary Glacier Park's Night of the Grizzlies, and is a native of Missoula, Montana, captured it perfectly, calling the events, quote, a night when devastating perfect storm chants intersected with young lives. 
Grizzly bears have been forced from 98% of their natural habitat. They are federally listed as a threatened species. Excessively overhunted by humans until the Endangered Species Act of 1973, there are now less than 1,500 grizzlies left in the United States, south of Canada. At some point in our future, quote, the grizzly will go like Arthur of the legend, who retired to a cave with his knights to wait for the world to grow up to his stature and ask for him to return. The grizzly, in his own way as noble a king as Arthur, will not return. He will be lost forever, along with the wild frontier on which he lived his final few years as the mightiest animal of the North American wilderness. So since, you know, there's been all this time in scientific development, has there been any reasoning put to why this happened? Because even the time of the attack sounds weird because it should be. Yeah, were they, they were malnourished, right? So is there a reason? Well, I think it was because of the encroachment of man. And just the pain, like maybe the pain drove them to yeah. hunt, hunt whenever they could and like, oh, here's meat and yeah, that's bo- easier. Both than... bears were, yeah, definitely, uh, I think, desperate, hungry, and yeah. When, also, whenever it was available to them, they, they, they would eat and had really lost their fear of people. Yeah, that conditioning of all these people constantly there year-round and knowing that they're going to get garbage and other food, I think changes how they engage with but nature, ju- right? And just the fact that it was, what, an hour and a half apart, two hours? Two, That's yeah. crazy. To have it never, you just, you almost picture them like hanging out and being like, is tonight the night? Let's you know, just do You know it. what I did? And they were so far away too. I mean, at least eight miles away, the two attacks. But it was, uh, like I said, there was uh, the hot flash, you know, lightning strikes. I was going to say, could it have been the weather? Because animals are so in tune with like the moon cycle and things like that. I believe so, yeah. And it was, wasn't it, would you say like over 100 strikes? 100 strikes. It was very hot summer. And uh, I also read that. August is when they start a phase called hyperphagia, where right. bears eat so much before they hibernate. Oh, so it's right. a very it's a it's a time when they are like they need to eat. And if and they're if, not finding that food, or if the fires they'll pushing find them it. out, yeah, they will find it. Right, no matter what. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if anyone's done research on that. Yeah, I don't know. And I know there was also because it was the '60s. There was that they they <laughs> hypothesized that maybe one of the women was menstruating at the time oh my of God. but of course that's been debunked but yes of course the bears can smell the menstruations but they can't <sighs> that sounds like the second book to my grizzly bear thriller series well, there you go yeah <laughs> was uh, this ever an actual film i don't believe so it but you know what be... it reminds me of is my favorite the ghost in the darkness oh, oh, yeah. filmer that it, movie changed me. I got to see the lions in Chicago oh, at the museum. Oh, that's so oh, cool. Were they at the field? Is it the field museum? Yeah, and yes. they're tiny. They're little. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, there you go. Scrawny, skinny, oh, yeah. desperate animals. Yeah. And that one in particular, because they were so outside the norm of lion behavior, that they were small, female, that they were going and retreating into a cave. Like, it was just abnormal. So there's something like mythical, mystical about it. Um, I don't know. It really spoke to me. I love that movie. Yeah, it does feel like the kind of events that if they happened prehistory would be myth making. Yeah, yeah. Because of the aggression and because of the 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 crazy coincidence and perfect chance. Yeah, it's just it's just an unbelievable story. I was really, I wasn't planning to do a second national park story this year or whatever. <laughs> but boy, I loved it. We're and there find are find you some more. Obviously, things were different in the '60s and 
the understanding of human involvement and responsibility wasn't the same. Were there ever any kind of like lawsuits or anything from the families of the victims to say like you guys knew of this for all this time and you guys literally said we're going to wait till it goes really bad? It's so funny. I I don't know. I I and I, I don't feel like it's from a lack of research. That stuff like never came up in anything that I read. I don't remember it from the book Night of the Grizzlies, which is amazing by Jack Olson and everyone should read it. I feel like the lack of the law protecting nature mm. almost would work against that. Like, yeah. I don't think there was anything in place that they could sue against. Or they're like, well, we're just out in nature. What yeah. are you going to do? Yeah, and like it's people, like, well, actually, things could have been done. People weren't as litigious and they probably just didn't even think in those Maybe right. in those terms, you know, right. to be like, well, I can sue the government because a bear ate my kid. Yeah, to well, for the purpose of responsibility, exactly. Yeah, not not just. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, you know, for wrongful death or whatever, but to say like Lack you guys freaking and... knew you had a bear that was attacking a cabin, as if that's not weird enough. And then you're like, oh yeah, you guys can go just sleep outside. This thing's just trying to tear down a house. It's fine. It's awful that it's happened. That it happened, but at least it started to make change happen in the parks. Yeah. I, I really think as a result of that, the Endangered Species Act probably had something to do with that, with that yeah. sort of the the encroachment of man and the, and the uh, yeah, the way that, yeah, I think, oh, the other thing I was going to say too is I think that an animal, a wild animal eating human trash, sort of like when we eat junk food, yeah. like just changes their brain and, and it does make you crazy. Well, I mean, imagine... I felt like I could punch someone over like a Snickers bar, like like <laughs> Joe Pesci in that commercial or whatever. But even in the '60s, you know, you still had foods, you know, made with preservatives and chemicals and yeah. unnatural things, and, and just it. so much sugar, so much salt. Yeah, yeah, and it's not what they're used to, and the fact that they're like in pain because of what they're eating. Yeah, they don't know they're eating. There was a part where one of the one of the bears ate a ate a a baby food jar, the whole thing, full of food. And so they, yeah, it's like they, it's like they're just eating a piece of fruit, but it's full of glass. Full I mean, of we glass. shouldn't be taking glass into the woods anyway. That too. Yeah. Well, it's very spooky and awful, and a reminder to like follow the rules too when you're camping yeah. and take your garbage. You need to leave the way you arrived. Yeah, you know? and you know what? Don't trust the system because <laughs> sometimes they don't know anything about bears. <laughs> Thank you, and good night. I don't want to see two chins. I believe it's pronounced two chains. Go for three. <laughs> Go for three. <laughs> I like when I catch myself hunched over on the couch and my neck is like protruding and my head, my head is kind of leaning back yeah. and I'm like, I look like a bullfrog right now. Poor Josh has to see me just sitting here like a full-on freaking bullfrog. What if I'm like, guys, I'm coming out. I have a thing for French maids. <laughs> like, oh, you watched Clue too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was, <laughs> I always want to grow up and be her, man. She, she was hot. Yes. Iconic. And Those boob jiggles. Formative. Just boobies on a plate like that. Great. You nasty son of a bitch. Those little glasses. Was that, that mustache was that I wore Martin from Mull? Halloween? It was Martin Mull. That's Good job, great. everybody. Thank you. He's yeah, funny. Yeah, he looks like a like he's made of string cheese. Yeah, but, but like, I I bang that. Like, why not? A check, a check, check, a check, check, check. Hi.
ha, 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 ha. Oh, also. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Keep on keeping on. I knew you yeah. were in a hard place. You couldn't just <laughs> abandon it. And it I have a hard due. condition. <laughs> no, you were not allowed to use that. Every oh, week. ow, you're hurting my heart. <laughs> You, the doctor said no one can say no to me. But I, I can think of. Uh, I can think of. I feel like you're about year. to though. Ow. Which was built in 1914, and like Granite Park Chalet. Oh my God, I've done it again. Quote: The 6.5 acre historic district. <laughs> All right, Alicia. <gasps> I don't want to be part of the gang bang. <laughs> Too bad. You're Wait. getting. You're getting banged on by this no! gang. <laughs> bang, it's bang. our time to shame. <laughs> Banger. <laughs> the big house serves as the big house served as a lot. Wow. As what? <laughs> Get it out. It served today, Junior. Served as my doom. <laughs> the big house served as a lot. Oh my god. Or I've had those moments. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna compliment you on how much better you're already doing than last week. Well, thank but... you. Yeah, I feel. Well, I. Yeah, oh I no, I retract it. She now, though. changed your mind. <laughs> thank you, for that. you have to prove thank yourself you. again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about your heart. <laughs> Ow, guys, no. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know what you guys were talking about. I still don't know what you guys are talking I about. I love inside but jokes. I had yogurt. <laughs> I ate it. <laughs> Get your chat book about dad's New Balance shoes and lawnmower. And his wraparound sunglasses and f- free baseball cap. Are you talking about my dad? Yep. A lawnmower while wearing a leaf blower on his back. And if we're talking about Keith, he's got a couple of balloons tied to his wrist. <laughs> like a kid at a carnival. <laughs> Making little kissy faces at him. Oh, boy. I'm starting to wonder if we it's do Adam have like e, a genetic. Not Adam in a squeaky balloon. <laughs> Oh my god! Just a cold robot. I still don't want to poop in public, though. So I don't know what that's about. I'd rather poop at it's public. It's because you're than a Terminator, and they don't poop. <laughs> I got you. Pretending you like German shepherds. Terminators hate German shepherds. I know that because I just watched the Terminator that. yesterday. I loved Eddie Furlong. Yeah. I don't know why, but I did. Because <laughs> you were a child of the '90s. Yeah. He was a little dirt bag. I love a good dirt bag. You sure yeah. do. He looked like a, a uh, too young to be a sizzler cook, but he was going to work there. <laughs> no, you're right. Mm-hmm. You are fucking right. I know. Applebee's. Little bit of chicken fries. <laughs> and cold beer on a Friday night. <laughs> like a, it is. It's shaped like a chubby little footlong. <laughs> that's been kind of like in your backpack for a few minutes. <laughs> Quote, as Paul Dunn told his parents back in Minnesota much, Minnesota <laughs> Accuracy. Uh, uh. Oh. Werewolves of London. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>